Chapter One of The Flint Heart. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. The Flint Heart by Eden Philpotts. Chapter One The Mystery Man. Very many years ago, perhaps five thousand, perhaps more, there was a wonderful and a busy people swarming all over Dartmoor. And if you don't know where Dartmoor is, get your map of England, and you'll find it in Devonshire. Some day, if you happen to be lucky, you may go there for a holiday, and then I can promise you a mighty treat. But you won't see exactly what I'm going to show you now, because the folk who begin this story have all vanished, and their houses have nearly all vanished, too. They lived in the New Stone Age, and if you think that sounds dull, you never made a bigger mistake in your life. It was the liveliest age before history. In fact, nobody ever had a dull moment. Both the New Stoners and the Old Stoners, too, have long since rolled away, but when you go to Dartmoor you will see what they left behind them in the shape of hundreds and hundreds of other stones. Some stand in circles, and some stand in rows, and some stand all alone. But you will mark in a moment, if your eyes are worth calling eyes, that these stones never happened by chance. They are very different from the tors and clitters and rock masses, which are flung about all over Dartmoor, as if the giants had been having a battle there, and tried to find who could fling the biggest lump at his enemy. If you had seen the moor when the New Stoners lived on it, you would have noticed strange little villages of very quaint-looking round huts, like giant beehives in clusters. And about them stood walls, and little folds for cattle, and circles of stones dotted in rings, where perhaps the Houses of Parliament met to fling more stones at each other. You will see also long rows of stones stretching far away to lonely spots on distant tours, where the great warriors and chiefs were buried. You know these people had never heard of metal, and so used nothing but stones. Therefore we call their days the Stone Age. We can't exactly say that they were behind the times, but they were a good deal before them which is quite as bad, if not worse, because they could not even produce a packet of pins, or a tin-tack, or a darning-needle. Metal had not yet been discovered by them. They knew not that there were such things as tin, or iron, or gold, or silver, or copper, or lead. Dartmoor was full of good, useful tin under their very feet. The rivers were full of tin also. But they did not guess that, and they went on painfully hammering away at the stones, and doing the best they could with the granite of the moor and the splinters of flint, which they brought from far off, and chipped into arrowheads and scrapers and spearheads and many other useful things. They lived in the beehive huts, and these were fairly cozy during the winter, but in summertime must have been rather stuffy. Their homes were made of huge stones arranged in rings, and planted tight together and padded with peat. The roof was built up of the skins of wild beasts, 
stretched on sticks, but a hole was left for the smoke of the fire to get out. And there was another hole in the side of each hut to let the new stoners get in. They had no doors, but crawled in on hands and knees, and then lowered a leathern curtain to keep the cold from coming in after them. The fire burnt in the middle of each hut, and when the day's work was done, and the hunting, or fighting, over, and the children put to bed, the grown-up folk would assemble round their fires, and the men would make spears, and the women would darn the men's leathern shirts with fishbone needles, or do fancy work, using bear's claws or wolf's teeth instead of beads. Then they would talk of the times and shake their heads, for I can tell you the times were pretty hard, as you would expect them to be, in an age of stone. Not that they knew how badly they were off. On the contrary, they always thought the best times were gone, and had not the slightest idea that they were yet to come. And the old people all said, Ah! Ah! For the old stoners and their fine days before the world went so fast, and was so full of strange novelists. But the young people said, Oh, oh, you ancient white-headed sticks in the mud! We refuse to believe any time was better than these merry days of the new stoners. Which was rude, but exactly the same thing is going on still. For the old people believe in the old times, and the middle-aged people believe in the middle-aged times, and the young people believe in the present times, especially if they happen to be holiday times but hardly anybody believes in the future times. Yet for my part, though I shan't be there, I believe in them with all my might, and feel sure they will be more splendid than any times we have ever had yet. And I hope you will live long enough to see them arrive. As for the new stoners, the bronze men ran into them while they were still whining about the good old times, and then they very soon forgot what it felt like to have nothing but stone to work with, and wondered how anybody had ever managed to get on without metal. The arrival of the first pin was one of the greatest events in Dartmoor history. It came in a ship to Plymouth, and a great chief had it as a present on his jubilee. But the great chief's wife very soon got it out of him, and the first new stoner to be pricked with it was the great chief's wife's boy-baby, while he was being logged in his wolfskin cradle by the great chief's wife's baby's nurse. But from that pen to an arrowhead was but a matter of a moment, and then followed daggers and helmets and targets and hairpins and safety-pins and hat-pins and buttons and fire-irons and frying-pans and toasting-forks and ploughshares and pruning-hooks and, in fact, all the blessings of civilization that could be hoped for until those two noisy things, printing and gunpowder, were invented. And now, after all this talk, the story begins. There was once a new stoner whose name was Brokotokotik, and there was another new stoner whose name was merely Fum. Brokotokotik, we will call him Broke for short, as most people did behind his back, though he wouldn't have liked it, was a fighter, and Fum was a man of mystery. 
They belonged to a tribe which lived in a village called Grimspond under Hamilton, in the middle of Dartmoor, and the tribe was a very important one, and Broke and Foom were the most important people in it. Brokotokotik, whose name sounds to me more like the cuckoo clock out of order than anything sensible, was the headman of the clan, and a warrior of high renown, and Fum was a good many things rolled into one. He was the Lord Chancellor to begin with, and he was the Lord Chief Justice, too. He was also the only doctor in the tribe, and as if all that was not enough, during his spare time he made poetry and manufactured charms to keep off the bugaboos. There are no bugaboos on Dartmoor now, but there were once. They vanished away with the Stone Age, and Fum knew all about the bugaboos and could furnish charms for catching them or keeping them off. The brave new stoners liked one charm, the timid new stoners preferred the other. Fum was paid in sheep and cattle for his charms. Probably the sheep weren't quite as good as our prized Dartmoors nowadays, but mutton was mutton even then, and the mystery man loved nothing better than a good chump-chop. Therefore, when people wanted his charms, they always brought a live sheep, and if they wanted something extra strong, they had to bring two. Then Fum would make the charm, and often, if he was feeling cheerful and amiable, he would keep the customer and recite one of his finest pieces of poetry. These sagas, or sayings, of Fum's were very well thought of in those days, and if the new stoners had known how to make books, he might have done well and sold his poems, nicely bound in wolfskin or bearskin, for at least a shoulder of lamb a copy. But it was a dark prehistoric age, and the great idea had not struck him. He merely learned his own poems by heart and recited them for his friends, which, after all, is the best way to publish if your friends are patient and kind. Some poets before Fum's time lifted up their voices and sang, and the first new stoner who sang made everybody jump, I can tell you. In fact, he was so amazing and so wonderful and so unlike everybody else that they took him out to the top of a high hill and chopped his head off with the flint axe just for a warning to other people not to be too clever. But the second poet who found that he could sing was cleverer still, and he told the people exactly what he was going to do before he began. So they were ready for him and didn't jump, and thought it was beautiful. In fact, they made a tremendous fuss about him and bragged about him to other new stone tribes who had no singers. Which shows that you may do anything new in reason, so long as you don't make people jump too much, but give them fair warning. And this is the end of the first chapter. There is no special reason why it should be, but it looks about long enough, and I like to keep my chapters fairly short, because the long ones get puffed up and sneer at the little ones, though often the little ones are much the best, and the long ones are frightfully dull. Of course, in this book about the wonderful and never-to-be-forgotten Flint Heart, 
there must not be a single dull chapter, if I can help it. And if you find one, please write me and tell me which it is. Then I shall soon look after it, and may even drop it out of the story altogether, if it does not try to improve and brighten itself up. End of chapter 1